Hello, and welcome from the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn. Join us this week as Pastor John continues his summer sermon series on the parables. I don't know how many of you have ever had hazardous materials training. Hazardous materials training. It's a pretty common thing now in many jobs. One of the first things they put you through in orientation is hazardous training material. It hasn't always been that way. My dad used to tell me stories about when he started uh, as a young man just off the farm in his late teens working at the International Nickel Mines in Coppercliff, Ontario. If you have any history with uh, Inco, you know, you're careful to say it's in Coppercliff. It's not in Sudbury. You got to know that to be an insider. But my dad would tell me stories he remembers. You think about how much danger and training and, and uh, protection there is around asbestos for good reasons, right? My dad remembers in the 1950s, just before he gets on the elevator to go thousands of feet underground, plumbers and pipe fitters going by open bins of loose asbestos with a pail... And they'd just, with their glove on, grab handfuls of asbestos and put it in their pail, and then they went down the elevator to wrap it around pipes and stuff as they did their job. So we've kind of come a long way in uh, hazardous material training and handling. Well, our passage that we're going to look at today in our series on parables, which um, may be news to you, now we're back to this series, is actually kind of a hazardous materials training warning by Jesus in his day and age, and it's actually a warning about something that none of us really tend to think of as hazardous. It's usually the lack of this material is usually what we think is hazardous, and, and that material is actually wealth. I don't know if you've ever thought of wealth as a hazardous material. We're going to take a look at a parable called the rich man and Lazarus, and uh, it's at this story we're going to see one person in this life is very wealthy, another person in this story in this life is very poor, and people make assumptions about that, and then something that the Gospel of Luke has tons of is a reversal of fortune thing happening, and in the afterlife, they switch places. So uh, this is a very difficult parable. <laughs> it's full of landmines. Uh, the first time I ever preached this parable, I was informed as soon as I finished by the evaluator, this is probably one of the hardest passages in the New Testament to preach on. I'm like, oh man, and I just ran my mouth off for 15 minutes doing it so badly. It has a lot of dangerous things. There's a lot of things about this. We think, oh, this is what this parable is about then. And we make all kinds of conclusions. Is this parable about wealth inequity? The haves and have-nots in this world, and, and in the next world, that's going to finally be reversed when God's justice comes. Some people use it that way. That's tempting, because in the day and age we live in, the gap between the haves and have-nots are, are pretty wide. Let me tell you about a hypothetical 26-year-old high school teacher in the United States today. So let's pretend we'll call him Mr. Brown. He's a hypothetical 26-year-old high school teacher. He went to college for four years and probably has a huge debt still to pay off from that and a year of teacher's college. And he makes, if he makes on the average, he's making about $61,000 a year. Coast to coast in the United States, that's about the median. So over the next five years, he can expect to earn $300,000 uh, over the next five years, a little bit more than that. Now, another Mr. Brown is also 26 years old. He dropped out of college after one year, and he's worked for seven years, 
And he, this one's not hypothetical. He just signed a new contract to play basketball for the Boston Celtics in which he's going to make $305 million over the next five years. Or in other words, the salary of 1,000 high school teachers. And he's prone to turnovers when he's playing basketball, by the way. He's a good player. I'm just joking. But that's an example of the haves and have-nots. In doing my reading for this week, I learned that there are um, eight men in the world whose personal wealth is greater than the rest of the world. <laughs> kind of blew my mind. I, under, I read that there are three men in the United States whose personal wealth is worth more than 150 million Americans at the bottom of the scale. So there's 150 million Americans with less money than these three men. I, I read that there's a guy two years younger than me, and his name's Jeff. And uh, a couple of decades ago, Jeff just realized this internet thing's really growing, like at over 2,000% a year, so that's where the money's at. So Jeff and his wife started a bookstore out of their garage, and he called it Calabra, Cadabra, like Abracadabra. Called his bookstore Cadabra. It was really taken off. They restructured, and he called it Amazon. So now Jeff, I read just a couple of years ago, if Jeff just wants his wealth to stop growing, don't you hate when you have that problem? Where each morning you wake up and you think, oh man, I've got more money than I had yesterday. I have to put an end to this. So what can I do to stop my wealth from growing? Well, Jeff, the, the guy writing this article said, Jeff just needs to spend $28 million every day to keep his wealth from growing. So, Huge wealth, haves and have-nots. I don't know what the 58-year-old woman working the night shift in the sorting facility for Amazon's making, but I don't think she has to spend $28 million a day to just keep her wages from growing. So there is a, there is a gap. You could call that gap also profane. And is that what our parable is about? Not really, but kind of. <laughs> it's one of those parables. But that, that's something for us to think about that really applies. Here's the dangerous thing. This parable has all kinds of warnings for us, even in our tax brackets. So I don't know if you noticed on the way in, but we had a scanner working. And when you came through that scanner, it evaluated you as one of the wealthiest people in the world. We don't really have the scanner, but you woke, in, you woke up in Canada. You're at the top of the food chain. So this, this, this is a hazardous materialism warning passage. And it's in Luke chapter 16. If you'll turn there, there's a lot I could say about the context of this passage, uh, this story in Luke chapter 16. In fact, Jesus already told a parable about a shrewd manager. And his punchline in that passage on this shrewd manager in Luke chapter 16, um, you know, it's basically verses 1 all the way down to 18, is... Kind of the advice, bounce your last check. Like, in this life that you have, use the, the material things that you have for God's good and God's glory while you have that opportunity. That, that things that you do in this life have an impact on eternity. Like I said in our opening, we only live once, but it's for a very long time. So use your time here really well. And uh, he, he gives this punchline that seemed like complete nonsense to them. He said, what is an honor to men 
is an abomination to God. What is an honor to men? And he was talking about wealth, which, to which we've, we, if you read the first half of Luke chapter 16, I don't have time to jump into it, the Pharisees scoffed at him. What are you talking about? It's an abomination to God. Pharisees apparently really liked their cash. We can relate to that. We like our comfort. But here's the other thing that we have in common with Pharisees. Pharisees lived with a worldview that financial blessing, financial wealth, sorry. I, see, it even came out of my mouth already. Financial wealth automatically equals blessing. It, it was like the greatest two thumbs up you could get to prove that God was pleased with you and was blessing you was to have abundant finances. Now, now I, I can say that we, we share that in common with them. That worldview is so hard to beat into the ground. I, I hear it. I fight against it myself. But I, I've heard it from people, people that are going through difficult financial times, and they say, you know what a common thing they'll say is, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And they don't mean in their financial investments. They, they mean like morally. I, I got to be outside of God's will somehow because, man, I'm just not making it. There's too much month at the end of the money all the time, and, and I just, I, I, gotta, I must be doing something wrong. God, why are you punishing me like this? Like, there, there's where it's ingrained into our own attitudes. And the Pharisees loved that. So they scoffed at Jesus with this idea that you could uh, be wealthy and, and not be blessed by God. There, there were two things that they loved. One was their identity as the real insiders. And the more moral you were, the more strictly you followed their Pharisaic rules, the, the more guaranteed you were to be an insider. And then now that you're really on God's good side, he's going he's to bless you financially as well. It was all a big cycle for them. And they considered themselves the biggest insiders. And their wealth was kind of the proof of that. And it was all so very distracting. And Jesus said, it's an abomination to God what men honor or, or what they think is, is honored, is an honor to men. And that's a tough statement, you know. What are honors that I think are honors? What are the things that bring me pride? What's my source of pride in? What, what do we honor in other people? What are the things that we admire about us? other people. To, to call excessive wealth and consider that an honor and a blessing, God said, those are not my values. That's not how I look at things. Um, so, all of that is background. I could go on because uh, I'm, I've already skipped three pages in my notes um, to, to get to, how could that be? What's the problem with wealth? Here's the problem with wealth. It's the same as the problem with any other thing. It's not God. That's the problem with wealth, is that it's not God. It's so alluring. It, it, can, it brings so much power in this world. It brings acclaim. It makes things easier. It, it's God. It's not God. And we're hardwired to worship, whether we're even a believer in Christ or not. I, I would argue with you till the cows came home. We are all hardwired to worship. Everybody worships. What do they worship? That's the problem. After Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, 
It didn't stop the worship craving that they had. They began to worship their own power and worship anything but God, and idolatry is a huge problem through the whole Old Testament, and it's still with us today. And if we are believers in Christ and we've placed our faith in Christ, we're not finished yet. So we still have a lot of that old nature within us that we constantly have to fight against, and one of them is idolatry. And I'm speaking to the choir here, by the way. Would anybody argue with me that materialism is not a big temptation in the world we live in? Let's just say that that's a common idol that we all have a hard time fighting against. Um, This whole idea of the Pharisees loving to be insiders uh, in Luke 16, 16, Jesus said, until John the Baptist began to preach, the laws of Moses and the messages of the prophets were your guides. But now the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and eager multitudes are forcing their way into it. Some translations say taking it violent by violence, forcing their way in. What's that about? Jesus is saying that now that he's here and the gospel's being preached, people that get it, you know those crazy pictures you see on Boxing Day down in Buffalo when everybody's been lined up at Best Buy and they're stampeding over one another to get in and get the best deals? Jesus says, once the gospel goes out, people realize, that's open for everybody. I, I want in on this. And they leave everything behind and they, they chase after it. And uh, so Jesus is talking about a whole different change of values. And all of that's the setup. And I think the Pharisees are being set up. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19, I'm going to read the parable. But uh, it, it, think about it. Just pretend. <laughs> pretend you're a Pharisee with a worldview that says financial blessing is God's blessing. If, if a guy is incredibly blessed financially, God is smiling on him. And if he's a down and outer, he's a sinner and he's done something wrong. Just pretend that's your worldview. It may be easier for some of us than others because it keeps coming back. But that's the setup. And Jesus says this story. Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen. Uh, Fine linen, that's just talking about even his underwear is (laughs) high-priced. That's what the fine linen is. In our day and age, interestingly, you know, underwear used to be something you wore under, but that's another whole sermon. Anyway, he's, he's in splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham in the heavenly banquet. Literal translation taken to Abraham's bosom, which sounds really creepy to us in common language. That's like right at his side. So you're a Pharisee hearing this story. Abraham is Israelite 1.0. He's everybody's daddy. You couldn't be more of an insider as an Israelite to be Abraham than to be Abraham. And here's Lazarus is taken right to Abraham's bosom. Total. You couldn't be more of an insider for eternity than to be right there. Mind-blowing The rich man also died and was buried and went to the place of the dead. 
there in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. It's interesting he's referring to him as Father Abraham. He still sees himself as an Israelite. And he was born an Israelite. He qualifies as an Israelite. He's calling out to Father Abraham. Um, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, son. It's interesting. He's in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember the father talking? My son, you, this, this one that went and, got, and the father says, he's my son, so are you. He uses that language, son. Here, Abraham still calls him son. Son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Two important points to notice. In the pre-life, in their material life, in the life they had then, and remember this is a story what separates the rich man from Lazarus? What separates them is a gate. Now in the afterlife, they're separated by a chasm. What's the difference between a gate and a chasm? Uh, let's, well, even a gate and a wall. What have gates got? They got hinges. Gates can be opened. There's an opportunity for an exchange to happen with a gate. Some traffic can flow. Goods and services can come and go. Afterwards, there's just a chasm. They're separated in both acts in this play. But in the first one, a temporary time, there's a gate. Later on, it's fixed and there's a chasm. That's a frightening detail. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they'll repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So like I said, the Pharisees were being set up. And Jesus starts by describing the rich man. And, and uh, they would fall into this trap of assuming, well, he's so good and the other guy's so bad. Everything about that description of the rich man, the purple, you know, they didn't have brand names. So he couldn't be wearing Gucci. Uh, he wore purple. I understand from antiquity there's some kind of snail juice that was needed to, in order to make the color purple. It was very expensive. If you had purple, that was like the logo that showed you. It's like Lakers. You know, they're all in purple. That's the Habs team. You know, like, so if you were in purple, you were automatic. You, you wore purple to show your wealth that you had arrived. So whatever your fashion choice of the day, you know, in the award shows, well, who are you wearing? They say. They want to know the name of the designer. He's wearing purple. He's wearing the finest things. I've already made my joke about underwear. I don't need to repeat that. He, he's feasting every day. You know, <laughs> we do that. We're North Americans. 
we feast every day. We have to try to not feast every day in order to keep our weight down. Uh, in, in first century, not quite, not so much. No fridges, no way to keep food from going bad. It was very expensive. You grew it yourself. Now, if you're out serving the rich people all the time, how do you take care of your own food you're trying to grow? It was a day-by-day existence. So to be feasting every day, definition of, of loaded. And uh, how about, uh, he's not only, so he dresses, it was barbecue every night. Then there's Lazarus. Now, the Pharisees would have probably wanted to nickname him Loserus. Because by his stage in life, he's obviously a loser. It, interesting pun, Lazarus means God helps. Lazarus means God helps. Pretty ironic name for a guy who, in his description, he's poor, he's crippled, he has to be laid there. He's laid there just hoping he can get some scraps from the table from rich guy. He's covered in open sores, which means he's also unclean. Nobody's going to touch him. He's a complete downcast. And these are not your neighborhood labradoodles that are comforting him by licking him. These are street dogs. They're just checking to see if he's done yet. And that's Lazarus' situation. It couldn't make a stronger picture of have and have-nots than in this parable. If you were telling this story to your kids, you'd have to say, kids, Lazarus, he had the iPhone 6. You know, that's how bad off he was. No, I'm still joking. I'm still joking here. He, he was weak, helpless, all of those things. And, and, and they would have him judged and written on as some kind of world record abomination criminal. And, and the rest of Act 1 would have blown their minds. When he dies, that whole idea of Abraham's bosom I've talked about, being right there, you couldn't be more of an insider. And the rich man finds himself in, in hell in torment, begging uh, not for Lazarus' garbage, but just for him to dip his finger in water and place it on his tongue. So, to use a very technical term, we want to ask, huh? Like, what did the rich man do to deserve hell? Was it because he was wealthy? Is that this? Are we going to take this as a social equity? This is the proof text for that. Well, here's the thing. Abraham's an important character in this, in this story. Abraham was a very wealthy man. One commentator, I said, he's, Abraham's wealth is kind of described as he's one of the wealthier characters in, in the whole Bible. But you know what else is interesting in the Bible? Is you show me a verse that ha- sees Abraham just described as the rich man. Abraham's never really described as a rich man, even though his wealth is described. Um, yeah, I find that very interesting. But that's, that's not the problem. The, the rich man's wealth is not an indication of his spiritual condition. It, his lack of consideration for God's word was a clear indication of what was really going on below the surface. Well, where do I get that from? Well, first of all, there are laws in the book of Deuteronomy. One is Deuteronomy 15. It says, as they're getting ready to start living in the promised land, already before they've even fully taken hold of it, God gives them this, this little line ahead of time in Deuteronomy 15. But if there are any poor people in your towns, when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Um, now, now, it's not so much that the rich man ignored Lazarus, and so that's why he finds himself in torment. Remember the context of this. This is a parable. 
This is a story. Jesus is trying to teach us something from this story with these fictional characters. But there's these actions of ignoring a clear command uh, revealed, that revealed more about his spiritual condition than his wealth did. The rich man's sin was contentment apart from any concern before God for any responsibilities that he had for the things God had given him. That was the warning in Deuteronomy. God's giving you this land. It comes with responsibilities. And, and this man was content without any thought of the responsibilities. Uh, there's, they're, they're, the rich man is living in a Jeremiah 2.13 worldview. That, I, I quote that often. That's this passage in Jeremiah, the very beginning of his book, when it says, my people have committed two sins. God says, tell, Jeremiah, tell the people this. You've committed two sins. You've ignored me, the spring of living water, and instead you've dug for yourself broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And God pictures the Israelites walking right by this never-ending spring of living water. And they say, no, we can't trust that. We need to build our own wealth. We need to build our own life. We need to build our own foundation. We're going to dig a hole in the ground and collect water so that we'll have everything we need. And God says, those are all cracked cisterns. Um, when you're walking with your kids and they see a hole in the ground full of water, do you let them drink it? No, because we have like fresh water. We wouldn't let kids drink standing water. Gives E. coli, makes them sick. Well, Jesus is warning in this passage, maybe wealth, when it's thought of as a God, makes, provides some kind of spiritual E. coli. Maybe it infects us. Maybe it's a hazardous material. Um, Lazarus is taken off to heaven. It's not just because he's poor. That's another way this parable gets kind of abused. There's no spiritual benefit. We, we don't, we don't, we're not really told a whole lot about Lazarus and his soul or anything like that. And people try to read Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone. While Lazarus must have been a Christian. He probably went to VBS when he's a kid. And that's why he's in heaven. We, we're not told that. We are given a warning. We, as people of means, that while we live in this lifetime, there's a gate. There's a gate. There's an opportunity in this lifetime to serve God with all we've got. In the afterlife, there won't be that opportunity. And how we live in this life reveals something about our hearts and what we think our purpose is in this world and in this life. That's the warning that's here for us. Uh, it's interesting, I think, that the, the, the rich man says, um, I have five brothers. Now, I'm not really big on numerology. Scotty inspired me with his talk on David and the number of generations in the, uh, in the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, was, I, I love that insight that he gave. Well, it turns out, so if Lazarus has five, I mean, if rich man has five brothers, he's the sixth. You know, in Scripture, six is the number of evil considered. And, and what, anybody know what the number of perfection is in the Bible? Seven. So here's rich man, five brothers, six. If he had swung that gate open and had treated Lazarus as a brother in this lifetime, they could have been seven in this time. I just thought that was an interesting insight that I'd never really come by. But, but the rich man shows he's still making excuses. He, 
it, it can sound a little bit, well, finally, he's becoming a little other-centered because he's worried about his brothers. But even in his language, if you look at this passage later, he's saying, you know, hey, Abraham, tell Lazarus to do this for me, to dip his finger. He's still, he's still in a way, treating him like a servant. He doesn't even speak, hey, Lazarus, hey, Lazarus, remember me? I'm so sorry. Will you help me out here? No, he says, hey, Abraham. You know, like he's talking like he and Abraham are on the same team and tell Lazarus to do this for me. He's also making excuses. You know, uh, I got five brothers. I don't want them to end here. Abraham, send somebody. Send Lazarus to warn them. What does is, what is Abraham in, in this fictional story say? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen. Oh, no, 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 no. No, if somebody comes back from the dead and reminds them, then, then they'll know. He's making the excuse that he was not warned enough. When his whole life he had God's word with many passages like that one in Deuteronomy. I heard at the funeral yesterday that reminded, wasn't new to me, but it was a great reminder. Every one of us will be judged someday. Every one of us. Believers and unbelievers. Praise be to God that by placing faith in what Christ did on the cross for us, we can be uh, therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So we, we don't have to worry about that judgment of our sins. But, you know, brothers and sisters, in this story, is there not a great warning for all of us who've been given so much to remember that there's a gate right now. <laughs> and we have the opportunity in this life to show, okay, I realize that I'm living in the promised land. Sometimes I complain about my lot size. But I'm living in the promised land. God has uh, provided for us in such an amazing way. Can we see any, can we see the invisible people outside our gate right now? That's the other frightening thing in this story. Don't, don't read in it as if it explains to us the metaphysics about heaven and hell and the afterlife. I totally don't think that's the purpose of this parable. But in the parable, I think it's important that Lazarus was invisible to the rich man in this life, and he's visible to him after. You know, in regret. People can be invisible to us, people of need. We need to be able to see them. Uh, Jesus was once eating in a Pharisee's home named Simon, and uh, a woman of ill repute was there crying and wiping his feet with her hair, and it's, it's like the definition of an awkward situation. <laughs> you know, like a little too close for comfort here, and it's happening in front of a Pharisee, and Jesus says, Simon, do you see her? Do you see this woman? I think Simon was kind of like trying to do Jesus a solid and pretend he didn't see what was going on because it was all so awkward to Simon, and this woman shouldn't even be here, let alone touching you, Jesus, you... you uh, great teacher and all this. And, and Peter's, Jesus says to Simon, do you see this woman? Uh, the, the disciples are standing outside the temple later on in Jesus' ministry, also in Luke. And the disciples are like, wow, look at the massive stones on this temple. It's like the wonder of the world. This is incredible. And what is Jesus seeing at that time? He says, did you see that woman that gave a few pennies? She gave more than all of these wealthy people getting all of this credibility. That's what Jesus saw. She wasn't invisible to him. She was invisible to the disciples who saw the impressive temple. Do you see them? Really, really tough question. 
You know, Jesus says, don't store up treasures here on earth where they can be eaten by moths and get rusty and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where they will never become moth-eaten or rusty and where they will be safe from thieves. Wherever your treasure is there, your heart and thoughts will also be. John 3, 36 says, All who believe in God's Son have eternal life. Those who don't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but the wrath of God remains on them. The wrath of God remains on them. That was the situation for the rich man, though he didn't know it, because he was basing his acceptance with God on the completely wrong thing. There's the, there's the hazardous materialism warning right there. It's proof of nothing. It doesn't mean God's blessing you any more than the other one. Here, here's to just kind of try to land the plane really close. What would be my greatest warning for you from this passage? It, it would be this. You know how we all acknowledge when people go through an incredibly difficult financial situation that they're experiencing a trial? We've all used that language. We've, we've known people, I've known people that have lost everything, that have been uh, taken to the cleaners on a bad real estate deal um, by unscrupulous buyers and sellers. Uh, I've had people, heard of people that have been taken. I've heard of people that have made bad decisions, people losing their jobs, not having coverage. And, and, and sometimes we hold, we hold them up. I'm not saying this wrongly. We're like, they're hanging on to their faith. They're still vibrant Christians despite this incredibly difficult trial. And we say, wow, look at that, how they're enduring this trial. And we'll look at James and we'll say, that's just like in James where it says, consider it very joy when you experience various trials. God's going to use that to transform you into the person, you know, and it's like, good, good for them. Let's pray for them. They're in such a trial. It's never dawned on me before this week to consider Jalen Brown, Boston Celtics forward, as experiencing an incredibly difficult trial. When was the last time we thought about having wealth as a difficult trial or a test? Remember our, my friends and people that have said to me, what am I doing wrong? What's, what's going on? Why, why is this happening? Why, why am I going through this test? And we don't see, it's all test. Wealth is also a test. It's also a trial. Let that sink in a little bit this week. Get back to that hazardous materials or materialism idea. Good news I don't want to throw Jalen Brown under the bus. Here's something that I, that I read. I actually heard in his interview. And they're bringing him up because he just signed the biggest contract in NBA history. So they bring him up. They, they, commentators call it, he got the bag, like a big bag of cash, or he got paid. And that's the, that's the culture. But here's what Jalen Brown said. He said, I want to launch a project to bring Black Wall Street here to Boston. I want to attack the wealth disparity here. He says, with the biggest financial deal in NBA history, it makes sense to talk about an investment in the community, the wealth disparity here that no one wants to talk about. Wow. 
He said, I think through my platform, through influential partners, through selective leaders, government officials, we can come together to create new jobs, new resources, new businesses, new ideas that can highlight minorities, but also stimulate the economy and the wealth gap at the same time. It sounds like Mr. Brown, despite the odds, realizes that his contract he was just given is a test. It's a test. I, I wish him well. But I have to remind myself, my experience with money, my comfort, the power that my income brings me, the privilege that I enjoy, it's also a test. It's also a test. God help us all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, send your spirit into our lives, Lord. Um, we can easily forget. We can forget it so quickly that uh, we have um, so many opportunities that so many people in our world would never have. I pray you'd help us to be wise stewards of your material goods in this world. Help us to never lose the fact that they are yours. If we are living in a virtual promised land, it's still your land and your promise. I pray you'd help us to avoid the sin of ungratefulness and entitlement and self-absorption. I pray that you would help us to see the invisible around us. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to be wise and shrewd managers of what you've given and use it all for your glory. There are no easy answers to this, Lord. We, we don't always know what kind of help is the wrong kind of help. We know that we can do much wrong with our material goods by, by using it in, in ways that are not wise. We can force help on situations on people that aren't helpful. But Lord, help us to remember that, that this life is an opportunity for us to show that your kingdom has come in our hearts as it is in heaven and to live as, as your people. Help us to live as insiders in your kingdom now and not using that as privilege but as opportunity. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. There are so many difficult ways you could try to apply this passage. I could, I could go all day on it, as you can tell. But, but just take it home and, and hear the warning for yourself and do some time with God and say, God, in my situation, with what you've given me, what is the test? How can I live for you right where I am with what you have given me now and not give ourselves excuses because of all the things God hasn't given us? Thanks. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.